Bill Milkey, some of you may know, he is a longtime member of First Community Church. He was also on the search committee that called me to come and be your senior pastor. He does not know this, but his words on a video that was shared with all the candidates for this position were the ones in the end that inspired, inspired Julie and I to consider coming to this great church, to this beautiful community. Eighteen months ago, after receiving a second invitation to apply, Julie and I sat down in the home office <clears throat> to watch a series of video interviews done with the search committee. Their stories and comments were powerful. We, of course, knew none of them personally, but we were drawn in the way they talked so movingly of this church, of you all, the way they described this congregation's ministries, and the way they'd been touched individually. We began to sense more than ever that we really wanted to pursue the possibility of coming here. I, I'm thinking of a few this morning. Barb Berge was one who said, at First Community Church, God works magic through my life. Another young mom, Becky Haar, with tears on her face, described how wonderful it is to raise kids in a genuine group of kind and caring people like this one. Barb Davis, many of you know Barb, I'm sure. Uh, as far as I can tell, the Holy Spirit checks with Barb to see what the Spirit should do each day. <laughs> she just embodies the Christian love and, and, and kindness. Barb said in a soft voice, I really love this church. All the rest of the search committee members were quoted also. Their faces were there on the video saying similar things about how much they, they cared for this congregation, how honored and humbled they were to be serving in that role as members of the search committee, but that it was Bill Milkey who really grabbed our hearts. He said at First Community Church, it was here that I met my wife. It was here I fell in love. It was here where I buried my wife. It was here where I discovered that at the heart of Christian faith is the call to love. The tears in his eyes were real. The emotion in his voice, his throat catching, were all signs of how true his words, how powerful his emotions were feeling. And in many ways, that was all I needed to hear. Oh, there was more research to do and reports to review, and I asked for board minutes and for financial, but all that sort of thing. But honestly, when Bill said that at this place, he found the love of his life, and he discovered in that in that love, that it's love, that it's the heart of our faith, or there's no faith. It was in that moment that we knew that First Community Church's future, regardless who was called, was strong and amazing because love was real then, and it's real now. Of course, as you know, may know, I knew of First Community Church long before I saw that video. This congregation was lifted up in an article in the Christian Century back in the early 1990s. The Century is sort of the primary voice of the mainline church in America. They noted that, there's, that this church was the most important of its kind in the United States. That's a pretty cool thing. That's something I'd love to put up on our sign, frankly. I also found a book titled Grant Us Courage. It was a study of several great churches around the country. Chapter 1 was First Community Church. For the most part of that chapter, it spoke highly of First Community. For the most part. There were a couple little innuendos about a couple of things that I'm going to go back and research, but I'll do that at another time. Named in the, in the book, for the reasons of our greatness, you already know, 
the beauty of our music, the loveliness of our worship services. Ron Jenkins even got a shout out in this guy's book. But at that time, Ron had only been here 17 years, so who knows? <laughs> Especially noted also was the, 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 the diversity of thought, the willingness to consider all theological points of view and other religions while deeply exploring our own Christian faith. That's been true of us since the beginning, and it's true of us today. It's why I titled this sermon series, The Infinite Quest. Those words spoken by Reverend Licklider a hundred years ago described who we are then, who we are now, and indeed who we will be. Words of strength and beauty, openness and honesty. And there was also a great review of the many mission projects, both local and international, that our church was sponsoring back in the, in the 1990s, many of which continue on in today, including the Heart to Heart Food Pantry, one of our great joys here as we serve the hungry in our neighborhood and around the area. My conclusion to this research, not the sermon, don't get, don't get excited, <laughs> is that where we, where we were is where we are, and it's where we're going. Now, that does not mean we repeat the past. That doesn't mean we just simply keep doing what we've been doing. It doesn't mean we reach back to the great days of Berkey and try to carry forward everything that he was doing and plant it in place. As great as those days were, there's a new day before us, and we have to be ready for it. Uh, Listen to the words of Jason Barger, another member of that search committee, who said, we must honor the tradition and history of this church while preparing to be as innovative as possible for the new church, the new church that will emerge. Do you hear what he said? We have to honor our past, our tradition, our history, while being as innovative as possible for the new day ahead. Somewhere in that video, he also said, who knows, 20 years from now, we might be wearing jetpacks. I kind of like that idea. Today, we ran long at the 1030 service. I needed a jetpack, trust me. (laughs) We must recapture the greatness of our history while opening our hearts and minds to the leading of God's Spirit for whatever's next in our journey of faith. But I gotta tell you, it was Bill's words. I met my wife here. I fell in love here. I buried my wife here. And here I discovered that at the heart of Christianity is the call to love. It was those words that told me how great this church is and how great we can continue to be if we continue to let them guide us in all that we say and do. And his words this morning point us toward the story that we heard from Luke's gospel a few moments ago. A lawyer tries to put Jesus on the spot. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer asks. It's kind of a trick question. You see, he's trying to get Jesus to to get stuck, to get in trouble. This radical Jesus is preaching this radical idea that God's love has been given to the whole world, to anyone and to everyone. And this lawyer knows if he can get Jesus to answer the question in a certain way, he can get him in trouble either with Rome or with Israel. Because if he doesn't name the Romans as ones who might be his neighbor, Rome won't be happy. If he points at somebody else outside of Israel, like the Samaritans, He knows that Israel won't be happy. He's just trying to get Jesus stuck. This guy, by the way, is not only an attorney, he's also also a theologian. 
Now, I gotta, I gotta confess my sin here for a moment. I, is it okay if I confess a sin for you? It's not a big, deep, dark one, but it just happened this morning at 9.15. I said in the service, without thinking, is there a worse combination than a preacher and lawyer? <laughs> Some of you know our very good pastor of uh, pastoral care, the Reverend Jim Long, also has a law degree. He was sitting about eight feet from me when I made this little joke in the service. Anyway, I'm just confessing that so that you know I'm going to be buying uh, Jim lunch for the rest of his entire life, just to get the <laughs> But this guy here is truly that. He's an attorney and a preacher. He wants to win the argument. He wants to have the last word. What must I do to in- inherit eternal life? And by the way, when you see that phrase, eternal life, appearing in the Gospels, what it meant in Jesus' day was not so much about how to get into heaven, but about how to live now. And if you live with love at the center of who you are, they believed, uh, the followers of Jesus did, then whatever happens after you die will be taken care of because that will be that same love that lives on into eternity. Live now with love at the center of you are and worry about what happens later because it will be that love that will live forever. So even if this is a trick question, it's a good one. One that that sparks lots of debate and discussion between people of faith that should generate a good conversation, it does. But Jesus, in good rabbinical practice, gives it back to him. Well, what do you think? What do you think is the answer? Can you come up with it? You've read the Bible. You've studied the Torah. You know what's the answer. And the the lawyer, in in very good fashion, says, oh, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 6 there, by the way. The Old Testament does finally land on the foundation of love. Sometimes we think it's a book of war and violence, but even in the Old Testament, we hear throughout its pages this instruction to love God, to love neighbor. And Jesus basically says, great, go and do likewise. Go and practice this. Go and live a cool life and just be happy forever. That's kind of my unauthorized translation, but I I think it works, right? You're going to love? That's fine. Go and do it. Love God. Love neighbor. Good answer. A plus on the quiz. But let's pause here for a moment. Sometimes a church like ours, with lots of well-educated, thoughtful people, ones who bring their questions and their ideas and their thoughts to worship with them and to study, and wherever it might be, sometimes we think if we've intellectually answered the question, we're done. But sometimes the toughest journey is from here to here, from head to heart and we stumble along that way. There was a sailor who had just come home from World War II. The war was over. His ship was docked in San Francisco Bay. They had three days in San Francisco. He didn't have a lot of money, but he wanted to send a telegram to his wife to let her know that he was back and that he was okay. And he went into the telegraph office and he said, I'd like to send this, please. And she said, well, you've got enough for 10 words. He said, fine. Tell her this. I love you. I love you. I love you. The operator said, but you've got room for, you've got enough for one more word. He thought for a moment, then he said, regards. (laughs) Regards? Regards? How often in the church have we done the same thing? We say to each other, we say to the world, I love you, I love you, we love you, we love each other, we care for each other, only to stumble over a foolish word, a ridiculous act. A thoughtless comment, a poorly thought out decision. How many times have we said to the world, I love you, only to find ourselves flat on our face? 
You see, knowing the right answer is never the end of the story. The love that Bill Milkey and others on the search committee spoke about finding in this church was not the result that came from giving the correct answer on a quiz. They found it among you. They experienced it when you offered a kind hand, a gracious word, a warm welcome. It's when we act out the love that we proclaim that the reality of that love is made, made real. Well, the lawyer can't stop here, though. He's got to win the argument. He's got to, he's got to have the last word, like I said, and he doesn't realize the argument is over. He needs to be quiet and, and go out in love. Like too many preachers, he just can't stand not having that last phrase. And another pause here. Have you ever done that in your house? Have you, have you ever won the argument only to lose the relationship that day? Have you ever just had to say one more thing, put in one more word, one more little needle to your spouse, your wife, your husband, your friend, your partner, your lover, your neighbor, your son, your daughter, your parent? Just one more time. Let me make sure that you get this. Have you ever tried to win the argument when winning, winning it meant you would hurt someone, someone you deeply loved? Well, there's another sermon there, too. This lawyer, he, like, like we do too often, he just, can't, he just can't be quiet. He wants another trap question. Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? He's sure that he can get Jesus in trouble here. Jesus turns the table on the man, though, and he tells him, he tells him the story we know so well, the story of the good Samaritan. But here's the thing you need to know. In Jesus' day, a Samaritan was anything but, quote, good. Samaritans were evil. Samaritans were people that they didn't want to have anything to do with. They hated each other. You want to understand the tension between Israel and Palestine? Tension that still makes its way to the front pages of our newspapers today? Go back and read this story. Go back and study the history of Israel. The roots of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict are 2,000, even 3,000 years old. Old fights long-held grudges. These people cannot stand each other. In order to get in touch with the story, change Samaritan to communist or to Al-Qaeda, the parable of the good Al-Qaeda member. I got to tell you, it makes me nervous just to say that out loud. But that's because in Jesus' day, it would have been just that shocking. How can you talk about an enemy like that? The good Al-Qaeda, there's no way you can say that. That's just not possible. And yet it's just that shocking. A few days ago, I was talking to somebody in the church about this sermon. I told him, you know, when I get to this part here about the good Al-Qaeda member, I'm a little bit nervous. And he just smiled and said, just don't tell the parable of the good Wolverine fan and you'll be fine. <laughs> I noticed something when I, when I would work with youth groups and youth ministry that a lot of times the kids would love to use this parable as a way to kind of get back at their parents. We'd be teaching this, and I'd say to the kids, all right, I want you to reenact the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, use different modern-day characters to tell the story, to make sure that we understand it and get it. And so they would, and the first person who'd walk by the man who's been beaten up in the, in the ditch would be who? Can you guess? Somebody guess. A parent, a mom, or a dad. You can see where the kids are going with this. That parent doesn't really care about that poor guy. Who's the second one that walks by in their retelling of the story? Can you guess? A teacher, yeah, a teacher walks by because, you know, the teachers, who likes teachers? They just walk on by. They don't really care. Who's the one that comes by then and rescues the person in the ditch? Well, it's a teenager. It's a kid, somebody with purple hair and a spike through his nose or whatever. You know, it's that wild, radical, crazy kid. He's the hero. And I would say to the kids, you know, um, if you put yourself as the hero in the story, we might be missing the point. 
I, I said, somebody, and this is a group that I was teaching, my son Nate was in it, he was, he was in seventh grade at the time, middle schooler. I said, can you give me the name of one of your meanest teachers? And Nate put his hand up, he said, yeah, Mrs. Wichko. I said, oh, you mean Mrs. Wachko? No, I mean Wichko. <laughs> I said, good, that works. It's Mrs. Wichko who stops, falls on her knees, bandages the man's wounds, carries him to the emergency room, hands the nurse, hands the nurse her American Express card and says, put the bill on me. Spend as much as you need to be sure he's fine. When we put the worst person we can imagine in that place, that's when we find, finally see the point that Jesus is making. It's the one, the good Al-Qaeda member, the mean teacher, the communist, whoever it is for you, it's the one who behaves most like a neighbor in the story. The outsider, the enemy, the foreigner, the one we would never want to sit by. Now, we do need to be careful, though, and point out here that the ones in the parable who pass by, they do so for legitimate reasons. It's not as clear as a black and white story we might want to make it. The priest and the Levite are probably on their way to Jerusalem, probably on their way perhaps to lead a funeral or a wedding, to preach a sermon. And so for them to stop and touch this person would make them untouchable. And, and think of that, if there's 100 people gathered for a funeral service, and the priest is not there, a hundred people are disappointed and sad and, and don't understand. And, and so it's a, it's, it's a gray kind of fuzzy thing. I, I can tell you there have been times when I was getting ready for a funeral or maybe even a Sunday morning sermon when I was dialed in and focused and kind of had tunnel vision and didn't catch the phone or the email or even the knock on the door because I was so focused on what I needed to get done. I can understand how hard it would have been for one of those theologians to go out of their way. And so the question really before us is like the one Jesus asked the man in the story, are you willing to be a good neighbor? Instead of having a debate about who our neighbor is, Jesus wants to know, First Community Church, are you willing to welcome anyone recognizing that every person you see on the planet of the earth without exception in the eyes of God is our neighbor? And if that's true, and it is, are we willing then to welcome them into this place? How will we live? How will we practice? The answer about where we are going is truly where we've been and where we are. But there's a danger here of becoming complacent of just kind of sitting back on our laurels, of remembering that great article from 30 years ago or so. We're one of the great churches in America. It's a wonderful, strong place. There's a danger there of, of complacency, of sitting back on our laurels. I'm remembering this morning a story that was told by my friend Adam Hamilton. Remember Adam? He preached here on May 21st for my installation service. He's the pastor of the Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City, 20,000, maybe it's up to 25,000 members now. Large, strong, wonderful church that truly does practice what they preach. Adam preached two years ago here in Columbus at the Convention Center for the General Assembly of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And remember, 20,000 member church, strong, beautiful campus, amazing man, a wonderful ministry. And he told us two years ago at the, at the General Assembly of the Disciples, that's the denomination that ordained me, he said, I, I wonder if you would welcome truly anyone. And he talked about his family. 
Adam has two daughters. One is married, has a, has a child, doing well. He said the other one is, is not in the church. She's not sure what she believes. He told us her story. He said when she was in college, he made it real clear with, his, with both of his daughters, if you get a tattoo, I'm not going to pay your tuition. Now, whether you agree with that or not, it was a clear instruction. You get a tattoo, I'm not going to pay your tuition for school. You'll be on your own, just so you know. Second year of school, his daughter comes home, the one that's not married, she's gotten a tattoo. He says, that's it, I'm not paying for school. She says, that's fine, because I already quit. I'm not going back. I don't want to go to school. She moved to Portland, Oregon, spent a year or two out there, moved all the way across country to New York City where she lives now. She has tattoos on her arms, on both arms. She has piercings in her lips and her nose. I think there's one in her cheek. She's a beautiful, brilliant, bright, amazing young woman who's not sure if she believes in God, who's not sure that even if she did believe in God, she'd want to practice any kind of faith at all. She's got a lot of questions, some hard questions. She looks quite a bit different from most of us. When Adam preached this sermon, his, mo- his voice got real emotional. And he looked out, at, there was 5,000 people at the convention center that night, representing churches all over the United States and Canada. He looked at us, out at us and he said, if my daughter walks into your church today, will you welcome her? If my daughter walks down the aisle of your congregation, will you smile and shake her hand and greet her? If she comes into your space, will you look at her and see her not as somebody who's dressed differently, who has tattoos and all the rest, but as someone who's welcome in the name of Jesus Christ in your church? Will your church welcome my daughter? He wanted to know. I was sitting next to Julie. She took a hold of my hand. And we both started to cry because we have a son who asks the same questions, who's not sure if he's welcome. Will we be the church that will welcome anyone and everyone, no matter who they are? Jesus wants to know, where's the passion of concerned hearts for our neighbor? Where's the desire to reach out to all the world in the name of Jesus Christ, to the broken, the dirty, the lonely, the last, the lost, the least, the little, and the dead? Where is that passion that God calls us to bring? Where is it? I've seen it. I saw it 18 months ago when Bill Milkey on a video said, I met my wife in this church. I fell in love in this church. I buried my wife in this church. And here I found that love is at the center of everything we believe. Amen.